Hello and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation, brought to you by Hirespace. With the news this week that Battersea Power Station has appointed venue operator Cameron Hooper to deliver events at their new venue known as Battersea Powerhouse, I'm joined by Raina Chauhan, Head of Sales at Battersea Powerhouse, to give you all the inside scoop. We are completely, completely overwhelmed and just so excited for things yet to come. Obviously, it's still a while away, but I think the excitement is here to stay. And back by popular demand, we have Jake and Kate from Higher Space shining a spotlight on two fantastic and unusual places to eat in London with Menu Talk. They do like two servings, so they do one serving, you finish your plate, and they come back and give you another serving. I guess my main question is, was it good? But first... On the conference stage at Event Lab last week, we had Richard Groves, Charlotte Gentry and Edward Poland sit down for a live news digest. And if you think we'd let all of our loyal listeners miss out just because you couldn't attend, then you're mistaken. Thank you guys and welcome to this live edition of the Event Lab podcast news digest. So we talk about all manner of things on the Event Lab podcast, interview people doing cool things, interesting ideas in the world of events. So without further ado, let me ask our regular podcast guests and panellists today to introduce themselves. Uh, Richard. Good morning. My name is Richard Groves. I'm the Relationships and Opportunities Director at Smart Group, which incorporates uh, Smart Live, Moving Venue, Battersea Evolution, which is our big structure in Battersea Park, and we work in about 50 other venues um, throughout the UK. I'm Charlotte Gentry. I am the CEO and founder of Pure Events. We are an all-round service event management agency and produce events all over the world. Uh, I'm Martin Fullard. I'm the editor of Conference News magazine. Uh, and, well, I think that's pretty much summed it up, really. Nothing else to add. And it's your birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Let's talk about that loads. No, that's not. Let's crack on. Okay, so, guys, this was in Events Industry News, and it says that hotel developers, hotel developers are turning to event professionals like us, that's us, to design their spaces. Why? Easy to answer, because a lot of the time, event spaces are not equipped um, to deliver for conferences, especially because they've got pillars in the middle of the room, they haven't got the right PA systems, they um, haven't really considered what the flow of traffic might look like when you're producing an event. So um, it's not actually surprising that they would recruit an events professional to actually sort of look at a space or... Um, look at a plan and sort of say, actually, you might want to consider it this way. The lighting sockets need to be in these locations based on whether you're producing a marketplace environment, whether you're um, producing a large stage set and um, what production might want to go in here in the future. And I think they've, they've really come to view the idea that other venues are taking their business. For about 20 years, they just got on and did what they did and the Park Lane hotels were very busy but all the proper big venues in London, whether it be Old Billingsgate or the Natural History Museum, we're all looking at this market and we were taking events out of the museums and putting them straight into the venues. And, and the hotels got a bit lazy about it and suddenly thought, uh-oh, we're losing a lot of business, we need to look at what they're doing. And a lot of venues are now building themselves specifically for events and the, the hotels have got the opportunity to do that. And I think also there's, a, certainly with some of the, main, the major chain hotels, there's this, there's this kind of, occasionally this threat of blandness as well. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes the event seems very much an afterthought in some cases. I think it's just testament to the creativity of the events industry that the hotels have cottoned on, that they, they have to tackle that blandness. 
So is this a serious threat from independent venues for hotel groups? Hotel groups have dominated meeting events for, as you say, Richard, for years and years and decades and decades. Are they seriously under threat now from independent spaces? I believe they are. It come, a lot of it comes down to money. The business model for doing an event at the Hilton Park Lane, for instance, is all based on bedrooms. So they want to sell as many bedrooms as they can, um, and they almost give away their event space. So you can do an awards ceremony at one of the Park Lane five-star hotels for under £100 for the production, the catering, um, the entertainment and the, and the whole room hire because they're selling lots of bedrooms. So if you're old Billingsgate and you want to take that business on, you've got venue rental to cover, you've got the production bill and you've got the catering bill. And we have been actively looking at taking events out of um, Park Lane hotels to put them into old Billingsgate. And that price point is difficult. But if you work as a trio of suppliers, venue, catering and production, you can get to a a point where it is going to be attractive to the organisers and you do take the work out of the hotels because they've been sitting quite comfortably doing their five-star catering for many years. They're not reflecting what the audience want anymore. They're not looking at the informality that people want for back-end reward ceremonies. They're, when you're putting forward a proposal at a venue that um, is like um, a unique space in London, you have to put a package together that appeals on all levels, whether it be the, the holistic level from the client's perspective, the financial, and also the end result for the organiser that people want to come back and book tables the next year as well. And hands up if, you, if you're more inclined to book a, a, an unusual independent space than you, were, than you have been previously. Any thoughts as to, as to why that is? Feel free to, to shout out. Did you hear that? They're a one-off. They're one-off. So you unique. want something unique, something a, a, a something little bit different. different. Interesting, because there, there was another article in The Guardian recently that said that uh, kind of government cuts are leaving museums uh, basically on a, on a cliff edge and uh, a th threat of extinction, not so much in London, but particularly out, uh, outside of London. How much do we think that event, meeting and events can be the saviour of kind of struggling museums and cultural spaces? I think certainly outside of London, it's really important, actually, because... Um, there are fewer, more exciting hotel suggestions in cities such as Leicester, for example. Um, you're more inclined to find um, very standard um, hotel options, which if you're trying to do an event in the Midlands, poses you know, a difficulty if you're trying to produce something now which is experiential um, uh, with a level of fluidity. And I was talking recently on a panel discussion about the festivalization of events, which is all about its heightened engagement. It's about heightened interaction. Um, and that's very difficult to do when you're looking at a ballroom that's got the carpets in it that, you know, have been there for sort of 15, 20 years. And you're having to basically, most of the time, completely redecorate a ballroom anyway. So if you're having to redecorate a ballroom, you might as well be Going, spending the money on going to a unique space. Um, and if those venues are now struggling because of government cuts, it'll be really difficult, and really challenging for, um, for companies that are based outside of London that need to, certainly down the Thames Corridor, you know, there are so many massive tech companies um, down, you know, near Reading, and, and, and Reading's challenging. There aren't that many exciting locations down in the Reading direction. We've tried many times ourselves. And, um, the Bentner podcast has nothing against Reading Nothing uh, Lester, Reading, Reading. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it is a challenge. It is a challenge to find the right thing, certainly for large numbers of people, 
certainly you just open the pages of conference news and you see that actually there's the number of museums specifically are, are now starting to pay to advertise with us. I mean, that's always a good temperature test. I mean, off the top of my head, there's the Motor Museum in Coventry and there's the, the Railway Museum in York, you know, the, the, and around London too. They're, if they're starting to advertise with us, that tells us that they're serious about generating income from, from, that, from that stream. And editorially, writing more about unusual spaces and less Yeah, about I mean, that's ultimately, we've just had it confirmed. The show of hands from the audience suggests that people are interested in unique spaces. It's very much on trend. People are looking to do better, uh, more unique experiences, as, 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 you guys, as you guys know. And sometimes uh, a bland hotel just doesn't, just doesn't tick those boxes anymore. I think what's happened in the last five years that uh, museum boards have realised that the event side of it is a very valid part of the business plan. And as the funding from the government goes down, other funding has to come in to replace it. And a prime example of that was at the Science Museum when they discovered a couple of floors where they had a medical exhibition that no one ever really went to. It was really dull and no one ever um, got as far as the fourth and fifth floors. So they turned it over to the whole museum and said, right, everybody pitch to put something on these two floors. And the events team won and they put six million pounds into developing two floors for events only. There's no exhibitions in there. It's a purely an event space, daytime and evening. And... It's romping home. They're full, they've got daytime events, they've got evening events. They've put their money into developing a venue within a museum because they think that is the way that more money is going to be generated. And what's also interesting is that those spaces aren't that cheap either, so people are prepared to spend the money to do something that's a bit different. I was just, I just wanted to kind of know, those of you that have kind of booked museums and event spaces, do you find those people are, or those venues are generally more flexible to work with than, than hotels? That's fairly even, Steve. I've said one person put their hand up for both then. I think that's a really, really good point, though, because uh, you know, hotels might not always be the most exciting, but they, you know, they are set up for this. They, uh, they might be flexible. They're, you know, they're, they're purpose-built for meetings and events. Independent, unique spaces offer something different, but are there, are there any kind of cons to using a, uh, an independent, unique space? Anywhere where they fall short compared to a, a kind of purpose-built well, hotel? I guess there'll be restrictions on, you know, in certain museums, depends on what exhibits are around, but you won't be allowed red wine in certain rooms and, and so on. So, you know, if the crowd gets a bit rowdy, you need a little, little bit of extra security, which might take the sparkle out of the night. Yeah, and it's the practicalities. You can't get into some venues until six o'clock. Great. So we've got a question actually from, from the audience on this. So, so thanks to everyone who's been writing questions. Are the right human resources in place at unique venues to work with planners? I would say um, challenging. Um, because, but, but, the, but then I would say actually in hotels, we also find it's challenging because people aren't my personal view is that there is an education process within venues in general um, in terms of how to deliver an event. I mean, and also the sales and the ops teams don't really talk to each other. So you might be sold something which actually operationally doesn't actually work, which is wildly frustrating. Or you're told in sales, yeah, we'll chuck in the Wi-Fi. And then ops come and tell you, actually, there isn't any Wi-Fi and you've actually got to install it. All of those are very challenging aspects. So I guess it's not, the, I guess it's not necessarily the safe option. You, you work with lots of corporate clients, Charlotte. Do you, like, do you, do you try and push kind of unusual spaces? And is there some reticence from corporates who know that you know, they'll, they'll get a certain guarantee from hotels, even if it's not the most exciting? Is that a challenge? Um, we very rarely use um, mainstream large hotels unless the size of the conference or event requires it. So we are entirely only really use unique spaces. Um, and if we are using hotels, we're only using hotels that have got unique spaces. 
I think there's been a big sea change over the last five years of people, real professionals coming into the business in the venues. 20 odd years ago, um, there was a lovely job to do. You either went to work for your father's law firm or you went into the church or whatever, or you went and worked in venues and did events. Um, and it wasn't really a particularly commercial operation. Now there's a lot of very, very good people running venues who do get it and do understand what event planners need, what the end result is, what the RRI needs to be on these events. And it is a much more commercial business than ever it was. Final question on this. We'll move on to another question from the audience. But we've, uh, have we been a bit down on hotels, maybe? Should we give them a try? Which hotels do this well? Which do the kind of cool, independent thing? Which kind of get it right already? Are there any that stand out? I think Sea Containers is, um, is pretty, I think they're pretty good at what they do. I mean, they've got some unique spaces there. Um, they are independent. They've been um, recently bought, actually, privately. And so they are um, really, make, really trying to make, make the most out of what they've got there. And Firmdale, good chain of hotels that really look after the events market. Great. Oh, we've got a, a, a comment from, from you guys. I think it's more exciting when you turn up to a unique venue for an event. I've attended an event at the Science Museum, and we all loved it. Great venue, Science Museum. Moving on, and nice to have Richard here for this question as a, a food uh, expert. Talking sustainability at Event Lab today, big theme of, of the day. So someone's Christmas party this year is vegetarian unless you opt in to meet. Is this the future? I believe it probably getting that way. Um, a while ago, maybe two or three years ago, it was 5% of meals we served were vegetarian, no vegans. This year, it's probably likely to be 20 to 30% vegetarian, of which 10% will be vegans. It has completely changed its way around. Some of these people um, are flexitarians, some of them are pescatarians, some of them just fancy something different and trying to cut their meat down. So they're not pure vegetarians, but that's, that's fine. You know, that, that's their choice. We have to offer choice on our menus now. Um, when we're catering for 200,000 people over the Christmas period, we know that that 30% are probably going to be the bookers of tomorrow and they're the people that will report back and say, do you know, I really enjoyed my vegetarian meal at that party. I was expecting risotto or an omelette or something, but actually I got a dish that people had food envy on my vegetarian dish and I wanted to Instagram it. That's the important thing is to make sure that they feel that that meal is as importantly presented and, and produced as the meat eaters. So yeah, this idea that it, this is, it's a vegetarian meal, there's nothing wrong with that at all. We, we suggest that people have vegetarian starters because it's, it's easy to serve it because everybody gets the same. Um, and then because we do such lovely vegetarian main courses, it's not a problem. I think that's always been the challenge as well, hasn't it? That, you know, the vegetarian options never been that exciting and it always has been the mushroom risotto that you get served so because people are really taking this seriously and things have changed obviously the dynamic has changed but I also think it depends on the demographic of the of, of you know of the people that you've actually got at the event because significantly more people in their in their 20s are, are, are opting to be to become vegan or vegetarian so whereas someone like myself huge carnivore I'd be devastated if I didn't have a turkey dinner <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I first started in a catering company we used to pack me packing all the jobs and one of the last things you packed was a small frying pan three eggs a tomato and a mushroom and that used to go on the van and that was your vegetarian option if anybody popped up and said they couldn't eat the main course and it used to come back from the event go to another event come back from the event go and you could could go out 10 times before it was used that was how different it was back in 1990 as i'm obviously having podcast envy here can I ask a question? Because there was a programme on this last night about exactly this, where a family 
uh, were looking over a course of a couple of weeks to reduce their carbon footprint. The, the biggest impact that they could have to reduce their carbon footprint in a very short space of time was giving up meat and dairy. So isn't it the role and responsibility of the industry for planners, for venues, for the press to actually put this, maybe you can't put it into legislation, but actually now really start actively putting this as first choice rather than as a, a nice to have? Isn't it time we take that responsibility? I definitely think we can lead the way in that in that area. I think the you know the other challenges um, for us certainly is trying to actually get our clients to agree with that. I mean, like everything, there's an educational process. I mean, it's taken us a long time even to to get clients to really want to wake up to technology with regards to events alone. Then saying actually your meals are going to be entirely vegetarian unless you want to opt in for meat. That's quite a massive step, I think, to the corporate market. I work largely in financial services, so they're quite conservative and traditional. So it's it's a step by step. And you have to remember that events tend to be a premium evening out for quite a lot of people and therefore they will expect to be treated, which tends to be a red meat main course for quite a lot of the companies. Now, this Christmas party vegetarian thing could possibly be a young design agency, could be a young startup tech agency. It could be people that actually naturally would not eat as much meat. But you have to be aware that even as caterers, we're looking to get our footprint down and to be sustainable and all that sort of stuff. We, it, this is still a very special event for people and therefore we need to reflect their aspirations and certainly the people that are coming's aspirations. And for war ceremonies, if you're spending £10,000 on a table, a plate of tofu, however deliciously it is presented and how marvellous it might be, even with a sparkler in the top and making it look really special, it is still tofu, it's not a piece of lamb. We, we talked about hotels potentially being under threat from kind of independent spaces. Are, are, are the traditional caterers under threat more than they ever have been from kind of marketplaces? There's a few food business market places that are popping up there's a trend towards kind of street food often we see is that a big threat for the for the it, it, it is actually quite a lot of people now and back to christmas parties a lot of people want informality they don't want to sit down for three courses not everybody sits for an hour and a half at one table next door to the same two people in their life anymore they want to move about and especially with larger ones for eight five hundred people and above they want street food they want curb to come in with their traders they want some lovely trucks and things around serving mac and cheese and burgers and stuff and we are reflecting this in what we're, our offer is at places like Magazine at North Greenwich that opened last month. A lot of people there do want informal dining. So we're, we've got a, a smart street food brand that's coming in because that is what the market's leading towards. I think that's kind of also a bit telling of the kind of wider tr uh, uh, changes in trends in the industry. People are wanting to make every event unique. So people don't want to, you know, think the, the delegates rather don't want to turn up and know that, okay, well, it's three courses at this time. Oh, standard issue. We know that we know the drill we just go through the motions it's creating those unique experiences so of course you know playing around with different types of food is of course one of those key things and again you know that, that the whole thing extends otherwise why is every conference session at an exhibition always 40 minutes it's arbitrary we want to always try to mix things up a little bit and i think that the, the catering angle is a good example of that what do we think about plant-based meat that looks smells and tastes like red meat but it's not it's a huge trend now. Can this go into the Christmas menu? I think we'll start with our meat lover, Charlotte. What do you, what do you reckon? Oh, God, give me a ribeye any day. Um, I don't know. I haven't tried it. I mean, I guess absolutely. But um, I think there would still be a pushback of a sector of society that would still say, mainly, maybe is it wrong to say mainly men? We do many male-orientated events and, and they're expecting to see a piece, of, a piece of meat on their plate. If it was plant-based, would that go down well? I don't know. I personally haven't tried that yet, but, you know, it's a very interesting idea. Mine, I feel I can guess your answer on this. What do you... Well, it's not meat, is it? A <laughs> <laughs> couple of points from the audience on this. If I got the veggie option rather than the meat option, I'd expect it to be cheaper 
than the meat option and be exciting. I think that's something uh, that we can all agree with. And guess knowing the menu in advance would surely increase the number uh, of people going for the veggie option. I think we've probably got a couple of minutes left. I thought just worth touching on, on Glastonbury. 50 years this year, that's right. One achievement, right? How big an achievement is it to put on an event of this scale and keep it running for, for 50 years? And what are the big challenges of, of putting on an event like that? Making sure the grass grows back afterwards, I suppose, is the big challenge. You Glastonbury fans? I mean, just incredible. And, you know, they were the pioneers of the festival, weren't they, really, in the UK? So as a result of what they've done, and, and nothing will ever be as big, as bright, as, glit uh, you know, as glittery, as exciting as Glastonbury. The act that they get, I don't think, I don't really think there's any other festival, you know, you know if you're going to Glastonbury, you're going to get the, the killers, you know, it's going to be incredible. And to put something like that on and to make it bigger and bigger and, and what feels better and better every year and move with the times and change the glamping scenario. So, because the whole glamping thing has completely changed over time. You know, now it's not, it's no longer just go to, I don't know, Mountain Warehouse and go and buy yourself a two-man tent and sort of put it up. It's now, I want my inflatable mattress and my double bed and, you know, my fire pit and my, my waders at the, en at, at the entrance. You know, it's an amazing experience. It's amazing to think that when they started, the Rolling Stones were under 30. Um, and that's how long ago it was. And then also it's seeping into our business as well. Um, Charlotte and I were talking about an event possibly next year for a, a, a large management firm and they want to do a festival in a, country, in a stately home garden because people want to have their own festivals. They love it so much that they want to have their own. With regards to Glastonbury, I mean, I think, you know, you're kind of the, the younger level hardcore festival goers, I think, are more drawn to the likes of things like Reading and Leeds, you know, download, this sort of stuff these days. And, but Glastonbury has kind of evolved. There's a business model there that you can relate with. It has got a little bit more middle class at points. I think it's a good thing, personally. There's no way I'm going to be sitting in a field full of mud. I want to be in the fancy yard with central glamper. heating, obviously. I want to be able to plug my phone into a proper plug socket. But I think, you know, I think Glastonbury is, a, is one of uh, you UK's greatest event success stories. I mean, someone's here posted on the screen that 200 people went this year, but two and a half million tried to get tickets. That speaks for itself. I think we're probably uh, at the end of time. Guys, the Event Lab podcast is every fortnight. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on iTunes. Uh, you'll be able to listen to, to Sam Allen normally, who truly does uh, complete us. Uh, but I hope you have enjoyed it today and please do tune in. Give it up, give it up for the, uh, the News Digest team. Ladies and gentlemen, sorry for the interruption, but it was the voice of God that wasn't you, Ed. Thanks again to the News Digest team. Next up, I'm very lucky to be joined by Raina Chauhan from Canon Hooper as she gives us the latest news on Battersea Powerhouse, five new event spaces inside Battersea Power Station. Raina, thank you so much for coming in for a chat with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm sure your schedule's been pretty busy this week, is that right? The phone has been ringing off the hook. Everyone wants a piece of Battersea Powerhouse, and I can assure you there's enough to go around for everyone. We've we've been inundated with inquiries, um, very high-profile people and events. So, yeah, definitely watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds really busy. Yes. So our, our listeners may remember that in the last episode, our News Digest experts were discussing how London can do with one more large-scale venue. And then this week, we get the fantastic news um, about Batsy Powerhouse. So it, we're all really excited. Has it been exciting for you guys as well? It's just been crazy in the office. Everyone cannot contain their excitement. We are over the moon to have won the pitch um, to operate the event space within the Batsy Powerhouse. We are completely, completely overwhelmed and just so excited for things yet to come obviously it's still a while away 
but I think the excitement is here to stay. Battersea Power Station is probably one of the most iconic uh, buildings in London. Like uh, all our UK listeners will probably be familiar with it. Those from overseas may be more familiar with it from the front cover of the Pink Floyd album, Animals. And since the renovations started again in 2013, like event organisers and I think probably all of London has been really eagerly awaiting what the inside's going to be like. So, Raina, what can you tell us about the event spaces inside Battersea Power Station? Well, we're actually really lucky because each space is really unique um, and there is actually something within Battersea Powerhouse for everyone. So first of all, we've got the Generator Hall and Foyer. Um, The Generator Hall is an acoustically sealed event space and it's got capacity up to 1,400 people standing or 1,000 for a dinner. The Foyer, which wraps around the Generator Hall, it has a triple height ceiling. It's also got these amazing structural trees, um, exposed brickwork. It's got glass at the front, so it's facing the riverside. So you've got tons of natural daylight, which is really, really special. Then that brings us on to our amazing Gilbert Scott Terrace. So that's actually the only public facing terrace that the power station has, apart from the residents. Um, there are actually two penthouses um, at oh, the top wow. facing the um I wonder how much they cost. <laughs> um, I think they're around the region of about 40 million. Yeah, I'm not um, surprised. And, <laughs> so yeah, just, just a small sum. So then we've also got the um, switch room, so that can be hired in conjunction with the Gilbert Scott Terrace. I think I've seen some sort of, I don't know if it was concept art or something for this, but it's looking really cool. It's Amazing. So it's on the um, Turbine Hall B side of the Battersea Power Station. So it overlooks the Brutalist side of the space. And then on the other side, we've got the extremely special venue called Control Room A. So it's actually a grade two star listed space. Um, Fun fact for you, it's got the original dials which was used for looking after a fifth of the electricity within london and it's, it's got a, like a really 1930s entrance. feel to it as well i mean it? it's it's pretty special um absolutely spectacular the glass vaulted ceiling are basically parts that were reclaimed from a ship um and then we have these really ornate bay windows we've got um polished parquet floor it's a super special space so we can do about 250 there standing it's got its own entrance as well and we have a foyer there with a fixed bar and then you come up into the event space and look down into turbine hall a so it's pretty spectacular we've also got um the alternator hall which is essentially looking down onto Turbine Hall B as the switch room is. So we've got a capacity of about 500 standing there. So um, they're all very sizable spaces. And what about the sort of like flagship largest event space? So that's the generator hall. Um, so in, in terms of that space, we can divide it into three separate sections or even more. It's absolutely huge it's acoustically sealed so we'll be able to do a lot of concerts we envisage um, a lot of sporting events and also a lot of car launches because we have our very own car lift that goes straight from the straight from the basement into the building so i know where i'll be parking my car when i'm on site (laughs) (laughs) and um what about large-scale dinners and we can accommodate up to a thousand people for a seated dinner um but if you were to take the whole venue so all five spaces you've essentially got a capacity of up to 3,500 people. Um, do you think in terms of the decor you'll be keeping the sort of like industrial sort of vibe that the the exterior has or will it be quite different on the inside? We will definitely be honouring the existing features. I think that's definitely such a strong selling point to each of the spaces because you want to celebrate what, what was there in um, the past. So we, you'll definitely see that in, in the design. So, it, I mean, it was just this week that you announced that it was Cameron Hooper that had chosen to partner. Um, was, was that like... Like, 
a, quite a close race or did you sort of stand out to Battersea Power Station sort of from the very beginning? Um, I I think we definitely stood out to to Battersea Power Station. We were one of 55 companies around the world who pitched for the event space. Very competitive. Um, and from the beginning, our managing director, Deborah Ward, knew we had to stand out to them. So we created a storybook detailing our success so far. The book even featured some of our signature infusions made by our very own CBE. That stands for Chief Booze Engineer. <laughs> So a lot of people in London will be very and around the world will be very familiar with uh, Cameron Hooper and you have um, extensive experience in delivering events um, across London. I know sort of like Banking Hall and uh, Victorian Bathhouse, just to name a few. But am I right in saying this will be one of the largest ones that you've managed? It will be indeed. And obviously this venue is on a completely different scale. Um, so we will have unique challenges, as does any large scale venue. Um, the challenges will, I would say, centre around how we manage um the in and out of the multiple clients um, and their production needs. We're very fortunate in terms of having two years to plan and work alongside Battersea Power Station Development Company and the production consultants to configure the venue in terms of aiding ease of loading, setup, de-rigging, adaptable rigging points to enable quick turnarounds from event to event. So we do hope this will enable us in, in maximising the number of events and we then can take advantage of this wonderful venue. Brilliant. And another thing um, Cameron Hooper uh, famous for is, is your catering. So what can we expect from the menus? <laughs> well, as you may know, Chef Ronnie is always full of ideas. <laughs> um, he will be bringing some honorary twists to commemorate Battersea Power Station. So all I can say for now is watch this space. OK, excellent. We'll eagerly await. So um, and another another big thing that's going to be a, a question on the lips of a lot of event organisers is the question of the Battersea Power Station tube station, which I think is due to open in 2021. Um, how How's this uh, going to work in terms of when you're aiming to launch? Well, apparently the TfL are hoping to open the Northern Line extension by September 2021. And we are due to open for events from the October of that year. So timeline-wise, that works perfectly. But we are still really well connected. You can get a Thames Clipper directly outside of the venue. Um, we're very close to Sloan Square and Boxall. Mm. So I definitely think that you know even if the time frame doesn't work we will find a way around it for Brilliant. sure i know mean, it is gonna just explode when when that tube station opens i mean i've i've, I've been for visits i've seen other venues so like around that area and it's been so well constructed and and the plans are all there and i think just as soon as that station opens it's it's going to be a whole new area of london that people sort of consider you know like soho or or you know Shoreditch absolutely or... i mean they they have put so much into regenerating the area and you can see the level of detail we want we went on a hard hat tour last week of the space and the work that goes into it the sheer amount of people i mean they had traffic lights inside the building <laughs> for vehicles yeah. going in and out so that just gives you an idea of the scale of, of what, which they're working to and obviously with such a precious building that's great to star listed you have to take care in, in things like that so it's not just another skyscraper that's being put up they are regenerating one of the most iconic venues in London um, so we are definitely looking forward to, to the influx of all the people we'll be opening to the public um, for um, select dates throughout the year um, Batty Power Station are very keen on doing a lot of placemaking um, to involve the community and the public. Um, so we will have our, our regular um, by appointment only events that we have at Six Stories and uh, the Victorian Bathhouse, but we'll also do some historical events as well. 
So thank you so much for coming in, Raina. My pleasure. Like, thank it's, you for having me. Feel really lucky to have this exclusive news when it, you know, you just announced it last uh, Tuesday. I'll, yes. I'll let you get home because I'm sure you're exhausted. <laughs> uh, but again, one more time, thank you so much for joining My us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Raina from Cameron Hooper. We had a lot of emails asking when we were going to give you another helping of Menu Talk, the spin-off of Venue Talk, where Jake Lewis and Kate Demon from Higher Space discuss eating out in London. Well, we listened, and here it is. Hi, Kate. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good, thanks. How are you, Jake? Very well, thanks. Ready for the my favourite new feature, yes. Menu Talk. So um, we're here to talk about some restaurants that we've been to visit recently. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is this is just a perfect excuse to go out for a nice I meal. know. <laughs> we've loved this the past couple of weeks. Yeah, let's do this. I mean, this needs to be a feature every week, I this think. This needs to take off because I'm feeling this. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to your restaurant, Kate. Yes. So I went to mine a couple of weeks ago now. Um, and I got to get my best French accent on to say this, so okay. prepare for yourself. Okay, so it's called Le Relais du Venise L'Entrecot. Oh, nice! When are oh, you doing yeah. the French accent? Then? <laughs> I think I smashed that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna shorten it to Le Relais okay. for this. Nice. Yeah, so I went a couple of weeks ago to the one in Soho. So they originates from Paris, mm. um, but they have three in London: so Soho, Marlebone, and the city. Amazing. They also have one in New York City and Mexico City. Which is a bit random, but that's uh, cool. Do they um, eat a lot of uh, French sort of steak and chips out well, in Mexico? I wasn't. Must do, must do. Must be a market out there for mm. it. The only thing they serve is steak and chips. And it's a bit of a Parisian institution, mm. like queues round the block, everyone goes, everyone loves it. Is it somewhere, um, one of those places that you can't book? Yes, your uh, favourite. No, I'm not your going. Favorite. I'm not going. No, to be fair, <laughs> the one I went to in Soho, you can book because it's pre theatre. Uh, so oh, we, I did book that one. Great. Which is why I went to that I mean, one. Maybe, I'll, maybe I'll consider it then. Yeah. <laughs> It's run by a family, like a, this Parisian family, um, that originally opened it up to sell their own wine because they have a vineyard in the south of France. Oh, right. uh, so they opened it up to sell that. And then they just ended up selling steak and chips as well alongside Fair. it. And do they do all sorts of different steaks? Is it mainly? No, so it's the one cut. So you literally sit down. Um, they do have a menu, but it just says like... Steak and chips. Steak and chips, <laughs> yep. Um, and they order you, they ask you like how you want it done. Yeah. Um, and then to start, they bring you a salad, um, which is a green salad with a mustard vinaigrette mm. and crushed walnuts. Which is actually really nice. Like, I often get a bit worried when it's a salad starter because it can be a bit dry. Yeah. But it's actually it's perfect. It's like not too much vinaigrette, just the right amount. Um, and then they bring you your steak and chips. But their big USP is their like special sauce. Okay. And it's this like family secret kept recipe. Uh, it's like the kernel. Exactly. Um, and it's this like really herby, buttery sauce. I couldn't tell you what was in it because mm. it's a secret, but also I just don't have what the colour was that. it? What colour was the sauce? Well, it doesn't look appealing. I won't okay. say what it looks like, but <laughs> it tastes lovely. I, I, I'm going to guess at what you were thinking of. <laughs> it's green okay. and runny. Oh, yeah. But it's really, really nice, I promise. Um, so yeah, they do the steak and chips. Um, and then the dessert menu, bizarrely, because there's nothing on the menu, but mm. then there's 15 different desserts. Fitter rolls, creme brulee, mm. like cheesecakes. Oh, it's a really pudding. good dessert menu. Then. A really good dessert menu. I had the creme brulee and it was really, really nice. Um, with the so with the steak, I, I imagine. Do you know what cut it was? Uh, it was the wait l'entrecot. Oh, cut. <laughs> um, which is a it's like the ribeye, I think. Okay. Don't quote me on that. But and I you think. and I imagine you can. Uh, you know, request that it's done sort of medium rare. Yeah, exactly. So that's it. the first thing I ask is how you want it cooked. Mm. Um, and then they do like two servings. So they do one serving, you finish your plate, then they come back and give you another serving. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I guess my main question is, this is a place that just does steak and chips. Yeah. Was it good? Very, very good. Oh, I really enjoyed it. I think it's, it's very traditional. They've kept the like Venetian 
um, interior, all the waitresses are wearing like traditional outfits. Yeah. Well, like I'd recommend it to international clients, I think, because it's okay. like if they're coming to the UK yeah. for an event, Come. especially in Soho, because it's like such a hotspot for tourists, I'd recommend they go there yeah. um, just for the experience of it. Uh, but that's not, I would recommend it definitely because it's really nice food. Sounds good. Sounds really, really good. Um, so yeah, that's mine. But mine, I say like just... Steak and chips, not one for veggies or mm. vegans. Yeah, well. But that leads us on to your one. Yeah, I mean, I hope you uh, enjoyed it because you're killing the planet. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm obviously way more conscious of, of what we're doing to the earth. And I chose to go to a vegan restaurant uh, mm. called Pharmacy with a with an F. With an F, yeah. So like farm, it's got the word farm in it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they're going for. Their motto that they've got all over the place is from sun to soil. Very much about the like the connectivity between the earth and getting it to your plate and what you're eating mm. and, and biodynamic farming methods. Um, it's all organic. They've actually got their own sort of plot of, of land out in Kent. Mm. Grow their own vegetables oh, and everything like sort of grown there. Very um, sustainable. Yeah, it is. Apart from obviously I was thinking, well... That's not very sustainable because it's out in Kent. How are you going to have some, <laughs> some, some diesel guzzling uh, lorry sort of bringing <laughs> the veg into Notting Hill? But no, it's an electric van that they they get. Oh, really? Once, yeah, once a week. They've thought of everything. Um, part of it's the sort of uh, sustainability and and uh, biodynamic farming. Part of it's um, that the food itself is 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 very very healthy. Um, so they say we understand that eating can heal us and heal the world. Oh. It was started by a lady called Camilla Fayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, she herself is vegan, uh, plant. Based. Don't really understand what the difference is. Uh, aren't they just the same? I think they're the same. Yeah. They also um, have got a place out in NYC. Pop up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They they treat this food as medicine. Um, yeah, my partner's just recently gone vegan. She's testing it out. A um, couple of months, doing really, really well. We went in. Uh, we had it booked, which is obviously a must-have for <laughs> must me. Must for you. <laughs> I'm not into these places where you turn up and they just say, "Oh, you, you need to go annoying. and wait outside for an hour." No thanks. Um, so had it all booked up in advance. Lovely stuff. Arrived there. Really nice feel to it. There's plants everywhere, as mm-hmm. you'd imagine. Yeah. Um, they've got this sort of bar in the middle of the of the, of the space of the room, like copper and and brass uh, decor around that. Uh, people sitting at the bar then you've got the sort of restaurant tables around that warm and welcoming and trendy yeah. and, and cool is it a bit like scandinavian yeah very very scandinavian yeah, yeah. in terms of the actual food itself i start off with a massive mojito <laughs> that's Plant, definitely vegan plant-based yeah we shared a bottle of white wine also vegan nice um I imagine. Went for nachos. Just like just a plate of nachos and then we we're like, oh where's all the sauces and stuff? And they were sort of underneath. Oh. And they had these they had like four different sauces. They had like black beans and guac and salsa. See, I like it if it's underneath. It was underneath, but then it was but like, I like that. you couldn't really see what you're dipping and then got to the end. There was, oh, no. there was loads left. And... I prefer that because like, so it's on the top, then mm. you get all the dry nachos at the bottom. Yeah, actually yeah, that's a good shout. But we we had that for starter and it was absolutely massive. It was it could have yeah. fed like four people. Yeah. Um so by the time we'd finished that we were pretty full already. Mm. Was there well, vegan cheese on it? Uh, yep, there was some more vegan cheese on the vegan mac and cheese which we had, oh. um, and we we sort of, we sort of said to her, bring it out like whenever it's all you know, bring it out at the same time. It's all good. That was also a mistake. Mm. Why would you have nachos and the mac and cheese? And then so by the time we had our mains come out, we were so full. Um, uh. For the mains, we ordered kimchi bowl and Mexican bowl. Would definitely go back again. Mm. Um, for the the service was really good as well. The, good. the waitresses and, and waiters were, were fab. There is actually a, a private dining space in there as well. Oh, so there? obviously sustainability is very um, very kind of on trend for for companies now when yeah. they're looking for their events. They're, they're we, we often get requests for somewhere that's sustainable or it's got um, some sort of reusable element mm. to, to maybe like the mm. crockery and we can't have somewhere that's got plastic 
cups yeah. or whatever, whatever yeah. it might be. Um, so I think that this place would, would really work for a company like that. Yeah, 20 person private dining space is right next to the kitchen, which is like an open kitchen at the back. Oh, nice. Always really like an open kitchen. Yeah, I do. So yeah, thought it was great. Um, we'd definitely go back again and are putting it down to me just ordering like an, like an idiot, basically. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that was mine, Kate. Hopefully, Great. I mean, hopefully you can come round to you know helping the earth and uh, <laughs> not not just slaughtering cows. And yeah, you know. it's true. I know. Phil, maybe you should come round to trying. I wish I was at yours. Yeah, that's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Well, thanks for that, Jake, uh, and thanks everyone for listening to uh, the first proper edition of Menu Talk. Mm. Uh, we're both very excited by it, and we hope we'll it... be back again. Yeah, we will ASAP. be back. Believe me, we'll be back. Uh, Joe, you are paying for this, right? <laughs> We'll be expensing these meals. <laughs> if you do visit either place or if you've been before and you have some thoughts, do let us know because we'd love to hear what you thought of um, Lirile and Pharmacy. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to Jake and Kate from Higher Space. And that's our show this week. We will be on a short hiatus to give the team that helps produce the podcast a chance to go on holiday, but we'll be back with more news, interviews and chat the week after on the 15th of November. While we're waiting for news on Event Lab 2020, you may be interested to know that Event Lab run a series of smaller events throughout the year. If you're interested in finding out more, go to eventlab.online and sign up for our newsletter. There'll be a link in the show notes below. You can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle eventlab underscore online. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. Thanks again for listening. Hold up. 